Hey, Max, does my collection of butterflies and moths turn you on? (laughs) I wouldn't say it turns me on. Well, that's a shame because that could have made this book an entirely different experience for you. Is there a fetish for that? Welcome to Second to Die, a horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole. And much like any other time I do the opening of an episode, you're just going to have to wait about 25 minutes to find out what I was talking about. But is your book about moth sex? I guess we'll find out in about 25 <laughs> minutes. Well, now I feel like mine's not as interesting. Is there anything as interesting as moth sex? By the way, gentle listener, moths are my favorite bug. I love them so much, but no, I'm not into moth sex. I don't, I mean, obviously moths have sex, right? But like, I don't, how do moths reproduce? Are there like moth penises? They can't have sex like that, right? Like insects don't have sex like that. Yes, they do. Beetles do. Beetles like mount each other. Yeah, for some reason, I feel like I know that. I know that because I've seen it. But I'm also grew up a barefoot hillbilly. But moths, I think moths. It's not eggs or something like that. Yeah, it's eggs, right? Yes, but those eggs have to get fertilized. Humans have eggs too. Yeah, I guess I was thinking in my head it was more like fish. Okay, I'm about to straight up Google how do moths have sex <laughs> because apparently you're not going to let this go and start your part of the episode. No, we can do it. They attach together at the abdomen. The male uses his claspers, which are short hand-like appendages on his anus to hold on to the female. This way they can continue to mate even if they have to move to another tree branch to escape a predator. This is disgusting. I really wish I had not asked this. Fucking on the go. I don't like the hand anuses. I'm okay with fucking on the go. I don't know. You get pretty handsy with some asses. Really just mine now that we're married, but you know. I know, but could you imagine if like people had little hands on their anuses that like held you i don't know i don't like it i don't know teeth is one of my favorite movies and it's about teeth in a vagina so i'm it's not beyond that it's a horror movie i've actually seen god i love that movie so much teeth yeah i think i was actually considering doing it at one point but then i remembered it was like one of the three movies you'd seen so i did not enough about anuses that grab on a little too tight what movie are you doing this week all right well this movie that I'm doing is not about anuses or moths. But weirdly enough, neither is my book. We just got on a segue. Actually, interestingly enough, this movie has, I'm trying to think in my head, zero nudity in it. Which is weird for, because I'm doing a, I should have led with this. Max, this is a horror podcast. (laughs) You were supposed to do a horror movie. Yeah. Yeah, I'm actually like just for I don't know why that like just hit me that this doesn't have that. It's a very good movie. It's from the early 90s. People will know because they've clicked on this title that I'm doing the 1991 movie, The People Under the Stairs. It is a Wes Craven horror movie. We love Wes Craven from, well, either from Nightmare on Elm Street or the Scream series, depending on how old you are. I mean, Wes Craven has done like a million things, but the biggest thing is he did the original Nightmare on Elm Street and a bunch of the other ones and then he also did the scream movies which people do love i love them too i think they're fun yeah 
like Wes Craven and John Carpenter were like the big two horror guys of the well late seventies to the through the nineties. But then John Carpenter also worked with Deborah Hill a lot, and she kind of gets left out of the conversation, even though she was just as really like big in the involvement of creating the Halloween movies and and in the horror scene in general. But she was a woman, so. But the eighties were not a fun time to be a lady. Yeah, I mean that's why I tried to mention her when I was talking about the movies. But anyways, this is not them. This is Wes Craven. Back to the people under the stairs. So, The People Under the Stairs is a Wes Craven movie from 1991, like I mentioned. It was written and directed by him. It was inspired by a real-life news story that Craven had read from the late 70s, where a pair of burglars broke into a house in L.A., and they inadvertently caused the police to show up, and they found two children who had been locked inside of the house by their parents for their entire lives, and were not allowed outside. What? Yeah, it was like... um. What do they call them? Like a feral wild child situation. Feral children. Yeah. Oh, my God. I thought that was going to go the route of like these two people broke into a house and hid into the, the cupboard under the stairs and then killed the residents that night while they slept. Like, I thought that's where we were going. I was not. You caught me off guard. Yeah. I you mean, you got me there. It's weird. It would be like breaking into like a serial killer's house and then randomly like finding all these bodies and being like, holy moly. I mean, it's kind of along those lines. Yeah. And then the cops get there and they're like, so what are you doing here? And it's like, that's not the point. (laughs) (laughs) Why is this about me all of a sudden? But yeah, so they found these two children and I guess it made the news and Wes Craven made this movie about it. Feral children are kind of an interesting phenomenon a little bit. I study, well... I studied about them slightly from a linguistics perspective when I was in college, and it's kind of interesting, and so I'm going to talk about it for half a second real quick. So there's there's a couple few famous ones, but I don't know if you've heard about any of these. Maybe you've heard about some of them, but the two that I'm going to mention is one of the original ones that everybody thinks of when they talk about wild children is Victor, and Victor was in France. He was caught... He was... They said, the article I have says caught, found. I'm going to use the word found. I think that's probably better. Yeah, please. He is found. He was found in 1800 in the forests of France. He was completely feral. He had never been exposed to people and was unable to learn a language, period, after several years of training. And he never was really like socialized ever. Then cut to Jeannie which is a pseudonym. Uh, Jeannie was born in 1957. I believe she is still alive today, but her whereabouts are unknown, somewhere in California. She was bounced around from hospital to other places. She lived with her mother again for a little while, but the mom couldn't take care of her, so she ended up awarding. I don't know if she became a ward of the state or something like that, but either way. So she was a feral child, but... There are kind of two different types of feral children, the kind that sort of escape to the woods. And there's actually quite a few stories of that, like children that run off to the woods and then they're found like six years later, like living with monkeys and stuff. And then there's the child abuse ones. Jeannie is the child abuse type where she was a victim of severe abuse, neglect and social isolation. At 20 months old, her father basically began locking her into a room, keeping her strapped to a toilet chair, like a children's toilet chair. Yeah. 
She never learned a real first language, but she, obviously, since 1800, we've made a lot of progression in linguistics. She was able to become semi-verbal and, and become a little bit proficient in nonverbal communications while she was living at the hospital. They moved her off the hospital, and she started to regress pretty immediately. And so, I don't know, it's a fascinating story to me. And like I said, I think she's still alive. I don't know whatever happened to her dad. I didn't look that far up. But I'm- she's the one who inspired the movie with the character Nell, right? That would be my guess. Because she was, to be honest, there was a lot in the article I read. And then thinking back in school, there was a lot. But I think she was the only one that I can remember from the U.S. Yeah. I just, I took a psychology class in high school. And we studied feral children and watched the movie with Nell and compared the movie with the actual case of Jeannie. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's pretty fascinating to me. But anyways, okay. Back to people under the stairs and why that's relevant. Really, it's kind of relevant. I mean, I guess because that's what inspired this movie. There is this, like, the daughter character in this movie is basically like that in that she's not allowed outside, but she is not feral. Like, she speaks a language and, I mean, she's abused because, well. It's a horror movie in the 90s. (laughs) Yeah. So, anyways, okay. Last couple little things. Wes Craven did say at one point that he was interested in remaking it. Wes Craven, by the way, is no longer living. He died in 2015. But so he was interested in remaking it. He was going to do it, but he was first working on a remake for The Last House on the Left. But then after that remake happened, it kind of like felt dormant about the people under the stairs. And then in 2015, before his death, it was announced that he was developing a People Under the Stairs TV series for the Sci-Fi Network. I don't believe that ever happened. I looked it up and I couldn't find anything, so I'm assuming it doesn't exist. However, now, on October 30th of 2020, last year, there was a report that Jordan Peele, who obviously had just done Lovecraft Country, etc., had signed on to produce a remake under this Monkey Paw Productions company for Universal Pictures. So that, I assume, means it's going to be a movie, potentially. Well, that's exciting. We could see it together. Maybe. Yeah. If it's post-COVID. Yeah, I mean, I, t- I miss going to the movies, to be honest. I love streaming services, but I miss, like, being in a theater. They should, you know what they should do now is, like, have, like, like personal booths. That would be so cool. Like, just divide the the seats into, like, personal, like, boxes. Like the opera. Little boxes on the hillside. It's not that surprising to me that um Jordan Peele is signing on to this, though, because the whole thing about this movie is it's a huge social commentary, especially on race relations. And that was like one of the things that people, I don't know. That was one of the things that made this movie sort of stand out and that people either liked or didn't like on it. It's, it has a lot to do with race relations, also wealth inequality, capitalism, all that kind of stuff. The protagonist in this movie is a young African-American boy, which is, not normal for horror movies period and especially not for back then anyway okay i'll start talking about it i'll kind of sum it up this movie is long i'll point that out it is like it was i can't remember exactly the runtime on it i want to say it was like an hour and 40 minutes or something like that maybe even longer than that now that i'm thinking of it but i remember thinking this movie is really long but good i enjoy this movie and i had seen this movie before The reason I did it is because I thought it'd be interesting to talk about, and it is, 
I wanted to get back to doing sort of like a classic horror that, you know, is big, that people like it. And so, and people reference this, maybe even people who haven't seen it. I feel like people reference it all the time. They're like, oh, the people under the stairs. Maybe not. Maybe that's just me. I make a lot of references. Anyways, so I'll skip through a lot of this because I probably have too much of the plot sort of summed up. But in the beginning, it opens up with a birthday card. Nope. It it opens up with a birthday tarot card reading, and we meet the main protagonist. His name is Fool. Oh, but it's totally a, not made up. It's a nickname. His oh. real name is Point Dexter. Oh boy. Yeah. What are you gonna do? Go by a nickname, Point Dexter. Yeah. Anyways, he's played by Brandon Quinton Adams. He was, I think, around 11 when this was filmed. The character, I think, is supposed to be close to that, maybe 13. Okay. So, his mother is... They live in complete poverty. They're in the projects. They refer to it constantly as the hood and things like that. The mother is bedridden. She has cancer. She's sick. And she's being evicted because they were three days late on their rent. And their lease has this clause that if if they're... any days late, then their rent is tripled or they have to be evicted. It's not really how evictions work, but that's what this movie is setting up. And basically, their family friend of Leroy is like, we need to get some money. And he wants to have Fool help him earn money. But Leroy is a criminal. And so the sister is like, no, no, no. But anyways, this is setting us up for the plot. So they need money. We learn through meeting the basically meeting the landlord and his wife they that they are trying to evict all the people in these buildings to tear them down and build luxury condos it's very relevant oh boy sounds about right yes the landlord and his wife those characters do not have names they're literally referred to as man and woman and they call each other mama and daddy oh 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 no see mm-mm. no thanks <laughs> They are real fucking weird. Uh Uh-uh. Well, yeah. Yeah. They call each other mama and daddy. Well, that's not the weirdest thing they do, but it's pretty close. That's literally what I call my parents. Yeah. I call my mom mother when she annoys me, but... Or when she does something inappropriate, which is relatively often. (laughs) Yeah. So, (laughs) that's kind of weird. And then they have a daughter, Alice, that I kind of mentioned. Okay. I'll just point out that when they're talking about wanting to build the condos and get all the people, the poor people out, they basically are like, we're going to build new condos and we're going to put clean people in there. And so there's a lot of this talk about like, there's just like a lot of racist shit from these people. So they're in this house. I'm just going to describe it. They're in this big house. They, we learn pretty quickly that there is this like creature that lives inside the walls and the creature, is, their daughter Alice has kind of befriended it. And we find this out because they go in and they are taking her dinner plate. She's in like a chair. She's I think she's supposed to be a little bit older, maybe like 15 or something. And she's in this like kids like eating chair situation. She's not strapped to it or anything, but she's getting scolded because the mother basically is like, you've been feeding that thing in the walls again, haven't you? And she has been. And... Then the the father comes in and the mom tells the father that she's been giving food to the creature that lives in the walls. 
And so the mom is like, you need to punish her. So the father walks in and starts to take off his belt. And the mom is like, just try not to bruise her face. And then leaves by saying, bad girls burn in hell. So these people are like hyper-religious, super conservative, abusive parent types. Yikes. Yes. So then Leroy, his friend Spencer, and Fool hatched this plan to go rob this house because they had heard that these people collect like rare gold coins or something weird like that. And they're going to go sell them for rent. It is. That is what it is. It's a dumb plot line, but I don't know. Robbing them is like, whatever. It's fine. So they do this. Fool originally goes to kind of scope the house out by dressing up like basically a Cub Scout, even though they call them like bear cubs or something like that. And like pretending to sell something, cookies or some shit. He gets turned away. Then Spencer goes and pretends to be an energy worker and is like, I have to check a gas main in the house. So they let him in the house. I was thinking like Reiki, like let me move your energies around. And I was like, okay, I would not let that person in my house. No, not unless they're like really good looking. So he goes to scope it out. Worth noting also that the windows of this house are padlocked like from the outside. Like everything is boarded up and caged up and the, the doors are like industrial strength. So he goes, then Fool and Leroy are in the van outside. So then they see the couple leave and they're like, well, that's weird. Spencer hasn't come, in, come out yet. And they're like, he must be in there trying to steal everything, which is like, whatever. So then they're like, we're going to go in. So then they go into the house. They basically have to like pry open a door. They break it down. Okay. Super long story short. Spencer is dead and Leroy ends up getting shot and killed by the dad when he comes home. All right, that escalated quickly. Let's go. Yeah, there's more stuff that happens, but it's just too long to talk about. So, and then Fool ends up kind of befriending Alice. And then Alice introduces Fool to the creature living inside the wall, which is actually this boy named Roach, who can't speak because his tongue is cut out. Oh. mm. Yes. So, what happened is Alice basically said that her mother and father had been trying to find her brother and they had been abducting boys from around town. And basically if they misbehaved, then they would just cut off the offending parts and then put them down in the cellar under the stairs. So some of the, so then the people under the stairs are all these boys that did something wrong. So Roach has his tongue cut off because he talked back. And then there are some of them with their ears cut off and some of them with their eyes gouged out. And they, like, live under, and they've kind of become these sort of, like, honestly, like, feral people because, well, (laughs) I guess it's the best time to bring this up. The couple also cannibalizes intruders in the house, like, burglars and stuff. And Alice, actually, she makes little poppet dolls. And she made a poppet doll of Leroy and Fool's like, why did you make a doll of him? And she's like, I make them of all the burglars and servicemen and handymen that come to keep to so that I so that they can keep their souls safe or something like she makes these dolls because she's like, their souls are going to go in them and live in them, which is fucking weird for a 15 year old girl. I'm not going to lie. This is a weird movie. Like, that's a bizarre hobby. And then she turns a basket out and there's like 20 dolls. Might I suggest needlepoint? (laughs) Yeah. So and then we and so we learned that they basically eat these people and then they feed parts also to their dog and then all and then to the people under the stairs. So cannibals. All right. Okay. So we're escalating a little bit. 
So Fool at this point is basically trapped inside the house. And he has to kind of run around. Roach kind of helps him sort of navigate. But eventually he is caught by the dad who takes him. Instead of killing him. I don't know why this happens other than just the movie. But instead of taking him. He throws him downstairs. And then makes him watch as he like butchers Leroy. Like his body. Yikes. Yikes. Oh, I forgot to mention also. In the part where he catches him and chases him, the dad is wearing a full-on leather gimp suit. It's it's like one of those, literally a full leather suit. Like kind of from American Horror Story. Oh, like a fetish suit. Yes. Okay. See, you should have just gone with fetish. Well, most people say gimp suit only because... Uh, what movie made that really, really popular? Pulp Fiction, I think. Anyways. Surprise, surprise. Never seen it. It's good. I mean, it's not a horror movie, but it's good. Okay. There's a point where the police come to investigate because the van that they that Leroy and Fool and Spencer were in is outside the house. And apparently that van had been reported in a robbery. So they go to investigate it and they're knocking on the door. And the couple comes out and they're, of course, playing dumb and all sweet. And they're white, so the police aren't suspicious. Mm-hmm. And so... They're like, is this your van? And they're like, well, of course not. And they're like, well, it was used in a robbery. And they're like, oh, gosh. So, oh, this. So the point that this happens, I'm sorry. This is bef- this is after they kill Leroy, but they don't actually realize that fool is in the house. But then the police are searching the van and the couple is there and they see the bear cub uniform. So then they realize that the kid was also there. The only reason I even bring this scene up is because the police leave. And like then she's like, the, that bear cub is in the house. And the dad picks up the kid's pants and sniffs them. Like, really, like a long sniff. It's, it made me uncomfortable. See, I wanted to make some, like, dirty joke about, ooh, I'd love to have a bear cub in my house. <laughs> That's an 11-year-old. But an 11-year-old also. Not what I meant. Not what I mean when I say bear cub, okay? I feel like everyone <laughs> knows. I feel like everyone listening knows what I mean when I say bear cub. Yeah, cute little fuzzy scruff muffin. Scruff muffin. But then the pants sniffing happened, and I just can't make a joke about that. <laughs> Real bear cubs, by the way, are so cute. I love when they, the way that they cry, like for their moms and stuff, is kind of adorable. Oh. They're like, Aah! God. I feel like that's kind of what every animal sounds like a little bit. <laughs> Lord. All right. Tell me what happens next after pants sniffing happens. Okay. So, God, I'm going to have to sum up a lot of this because there's way too much to get through. Eventually, Fool gets out. Him and Alice run to the attic. And there's one window that opens. And then Fool sees that the roof slopes down. And he's like, and Alice is like, it's a straight drop. There's nothing to grab onto. And he's like, well, there's a pond in the backyard. I'll jump into the pond. But Alice kind of freaks out because she's never been outside in her life. And she's like, I can't go out there. I can't go out there. She's like super social anxiety, agoraphobic, that kind of thing. So Fool ends up jumping because the dad is like running up. But then Alice is left in and Fool's like, I'll come back for you. So he leaves. Oh, before this happened too, this is so schizo. Roach had been shot and ends up dying from the gunshot wound. But Roach gave Fool one of the gold coins that they were there to steal. Oh, okay. So, Roach is a pretty cool character. Side note, Hilary Swank originally 
um, auditioned for Roach because the character was written as either male or female. It just happened to be cast with a male actor. Oh. So Fool goes back to his house and his grandpa's there and he's like showing him the coins that it was like two or three coins. I think that Fool, that um, Roach had given him and the grandpa's like, this is enough to pay our rent until 2020, which is probably not true. He's like, and get your mom her cancer surgery, which is definitely not true because surgery costs more than a couple gold shekels. I can promise you that. And then the grandpa's like, you need to stay away from that house. And Fool is like, well, I have to go back. I promised Alice that I would save her. And he's like, you need to stay away from that house. Those two are not good. And then in the gag of the season, he's like, that brother and sister are not something to mess with. That's why they hid their daughter so no one knew. Well, so here's the other thing. Alice is not their daughter. She's just a girl that they kidnapped. But they are brother and sister, but they call each other mama and daddy. It's weird. This is... Wow. All right. Keep going. Yeah. So <laughs> So basically, they did, uh, my first thought was, why doesn't he just call the cops and be like, these people have people living in the basement? But he does actually do that. Like, they call the police and the police go there, but they're like... They realized that the police were there, so they basically like tranquilized everybody and kept them in the basement, and I guess the police decided not to check out the basement, even though that's literally where the people were, and I'm assuming that's what Fool would have told them, but then on the other hand, this is like an affluent white couple, and Fool is an 11-year-old black kid, so... Yeah, but I feel like if you have to go and arrest somebody and search their house, you're not going to be like, that's the door of the basement. Oh, we don't need to go down there. Okay, well, they did put in this faux, like, um, pantry shelf that covered up the door. It was like you opened the door to the basement, or, like, it was like a cellar door, and there was, like, this little inner cellar door. So you opened it up, and it seemed like it was just, like, a food cellar, like okay. a food cellar. And then they hit this thing and, like, the the food shelves went up. Okay. That makes a little bit more sense. I literally was just picturing some police officers looking directly at a door that clearly went down to the basement. Just being like, that doesn't seem necessary. Yeah. No, it was... I mean, they explained it a little bit better than that, which is good. So, but Fool used this time to sneak into the house. Like, when the cops came. So, Fool snuck back into the house to go help Alice. There's kind of this, like big long thing where like him and Alice are in the walls like running from the dad who can't fit in the walls but he's got like a shotgun so he's shooting and stuff shit it's yeah it's intense but it does go on a little bit too long for me it was probably the ending of this movie to me was weak until the very end the last like 20 minutes dragged a little bit because it was just so much of them like running through the wall running through this wall running through that wall anyways ultimately the fool is like, okay, Alice, like they go, they slide down the chimney shaft. It's kind of weird. And fool is like, okay, go out the door. I'm going to go and free all the kids in the basement. So then fool goes down to the basement to the people under the stairs and he kind of like befriends them and they show him like the family vault, which is literally this room under the house that is just tons of like gold coins and land deeds and like stacks of money. And I thought it was kind of good. I mean, it's literally like on the nose that like wealthy people literally just live and sit on money. Yeah. And so, and actually like fool even says 
no wonder i mean he said he called they call it the ghetto which probably isn't a great term but he's like no wonder the ghetto has no money because people like this are just hoarding it all oh yeah that's on the nose it's very relevant for today so ultimately they set the people under the stairs free the neighborhood kind of shows up to the to the door to complain about all the evictions and stuff and the woman is like basically is like i don't give a shit what you guys are saying but then as she's kind of telling off people alice drops down and knocks her out like knocks the mom out then she (laughs) this is gonna be such a paraphrase of this movie so the dad ends up getting killed by fool well let me start this over so the mom ends up getting killed basically by a combination of Alice and the, and the freed people under the stairs. And the kind of a little bit of the community because the community basically realizes that if they join forces, they're powerful than the wealthy minority. Also on the nose, yeah. eat the rich. Yes, basically. Oh, and actually I had something to th- say about that as well, but I'll just say it now. I thought it was very interesting because in the beginning, it's the rich sustaining themselves off the poor like literally eating the poor people like i mean the like the the workers the delivery men the maintenance men they're like they literally eat them and then it's kind of like all of the sort of lower class realize that if they team up they can switch it and they can consume the rich and take over so very relevant anyways the mom's killed by the people under the stairs the dad ultimately is killed in this kind of dumb way where Fool sort of like blows up the house with dynamite that he finds in the basement. I'm just going to ignore that and pretend it didn't happen. That's fine. <laughs> it's really dumb. But then after that, everyone like is outside. The people under the stairs, the kids under the stairs are free. And everyone's like celebrating that like these landlords that had been terrorizing the neighborhood are gone. And that's basically how the movie ends. That was a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. It has. I do think it's very socially relevant. I mean, even, well, probably especially now because the the income disparity and the wealth disparity is so, I mean, it's even worse now than it was in the early 90s. So it's kind of crazy. The, there's obviously the thing about the racial tensions. Oh, I totally forgot. I know I told you this before, but they like the, they may, they definitely it is very apparent that these people are racist. They like the dad literally drops an end bomb in the first part of the movie. And there is no mistake. Like with the referring to people as like clean when they kill Leroy, they literally are like dancing and celebrating that the dad like shot and killed him. And then the, there's an interesting juxtaposition because the dad ends up mistakenly killing the dog who is a Rottweiler named Prince because when he's trying to kill the kid and they're like, very upset about the dog dying and the juxtaposition between them celebrating the death of Leroy and them mourning the loss of their dog is I think very intentional. Yeah. But I mean, all in all though, it's a good movie. I mean, if people, people I feel like have heard of this, but if you haven't seen it, you really should see. I mean, the couple is crazy. They, I can't remember their names. I don't have it written down, but I I really should look it up. They played a couple on Twin Peaks and Wes Craven saw them and liked how they kind of like had chemistry together. And so that's one of the things that made him want to cast them in this role. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I've talked enough about this. That's the people under the stairs. And I will be interested to see if Jordan Peele takes it on because it seems like it's the type of thing that he could do well. Yeah. Having seen a lot of his stuff. I mean, Lovecraft Country was amazing. Yeah. So anyway, 
Now tell me what you're going to talk about. All right. So as you know, Max, but for any of our listeners who do not live in New Orleans and have not spent a Mardi Gras season in New Orleans, despite the fact that Mardi Gras is a week and a half away, this weekend is when the parade schedule would have really had an upswing. But they were all canceled because of coronavirus. But basically, everyone here would consider this like the height of carnival season. Because of that, I wanted to find a Mardi Gras horror novel. But it was surprisingly difficult. Uh, What I did come across was the award-winning Hadriana in All My Dreams by Renee DePestra. Which is what I'm talking about today. So... That's how I ended up with Hadriana in All My Dreams. It originally came out in 1988, but it was originally translated for the first time into English from its original French by Kayama L. Glover in, I think, 2016. So it's an actual Mardi Gras book? Well, well it's set in Haiti during Carnival. Oh, okay. So it's a Carnival story. Yes. Cool. It's the closest I could get. I mean, that works. Mar- I mean, honestly, carnival season has its own horrors for me because like the traffic and all that. Ugh. Yeah, not the same. So I'm going to give everyone a heads up here and let you know that this is far, far more literary than my usual fare. Like any good librarian, I don't think that this makes it better or worse than anything that I typically do for this podcast, but it is definitely different. But that said, let's just get right into it. Hadriana and All My Dreams, like I said, it takes place in Haiti during Carnival and it incorporates a lot of voodoo into the story and the setting uh, that is really well reflected by the cover, which was designed by Christian Fumpfhausen. <laughs> I just I just wanted to say Fumpfhausen. Yeah, five houses. Yes. Anyway, uh, it is covered in voodoo. Is it Veve? V-E-V-E. You, I have no idea. I think it's Veve. Uh, which are the like spiraling voodoo religious symbols. All of this is on a dark red background. It's all like super striking. I can't speak for the authenticity of the Veve themselves because it's A, hard to make out precise detail on the cover, and B, I'm not a part of that culture. But I will go ahead and throw in there that Depestra is Haitian. He does come from the town that the book is set in. So this is like an own voices story. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. Okay. It's pretty cool. Just making sure. Also, while we're talking about covers and like first impressions, I just want to add, because I'm fussy, that the library that I work for has it cataloged under romance, which is probably just based on the blurb, which we'll get to in a minute. But let me tell you, Not only do I read horror, but my one true love is romance novels, specifically Regency romances. I've read them for like over a decade. I love them very much. And while this book has themes and commentary regarding sex and love, if you see a similarly marked copy, don't be dissuaded. (laughs) It's not a romance novel. It's clear that someone in our cataloging department, no shade, read the blurb and was like, this sounds like a romance. Boop, sticker, done. (laughs) interesting so let's get the blurb out of the way a beautiful young french woman hadriana is about to marry a haitian boy from a prominent family but on the morning of the wedding 
Hadriana drinks a mysterious potion and collapses at the altar. Transformed into a zombie, her wedding becomes her funeral. She is buried by the town, revived by an evil sorcerer, and disappears into popular legend. Set against the backdrop of magic and eroticism, and recounted with delirious humor, the novel raises the universal questions about race and sexuality. Oh, interesting. That sounds kind of cool, actually. It's not as cool (laughs) as it sounds. Okay, so I thought that I was going to have, like, zombie bride shambles to the altar. (laughs) Yeah. Like, that's really what I thought I was going to get. And you did not. It's not what I got. Mm -mm. Some parts were worse. Some parts were better beyond my wildest dreams, with or without Hadriana in them. Okay. So let's dive right in. Because it is more of a literary work and it's quite short to begin with, there's not a whole lot of story to tell. A lot of the text is taken up with like imagery and kind of like metaphor and commentary. It's really good as far as like literature is concerned, but there's very little story. Our story opens with Patrick, our narrator, and he is seeing his godmother's corpse being driven through town in a limousine with an enormous butterfly on her face. Like a real butterfly? Yes, but we'll get to that later. The butterfly is a special butterfly. Uh, She had had a dream before her death that the trip between purgatory and heaven was the exact width of their town. So she wanted to be driven across town to be shown how wide it was and died in the process. So the limo eventually was just driving her corpse around. Yikes. Yeah, real weird. So then it basically jumps from that point in Patrick's youth, like teenage-ish years, a little bit ahead to Hadriana and her getting married. Again, like I said, like this book is beautiful and it's poetic and it's manic, but at the end of the day, there's not much for me to talk about. The story is split into two main parts. It kind of starts with the perspective of the wedding events from the town. And then there's a part that is the perspective from Hadriana. And I'm just going to like combine the two. Okay. So that it makes more sense. So on her wedding day, Hadriana collapses at the altar right after saying I do. She had had three glasses of lemonade that had been laced with a drug that causes the appearance of death. And according to the book, this is the first step of zombification. One then removes the soul of the deceased and the remaining body is left compliant. And then you use them as a soulless servant. Okay, I'm here for that. Fun fact, attempted zombification is an actual crime in Haiti. It's mentioned in the book and I verified it. (laughs) Like it's in Haiti's laws that you can't turn people into zombies or attempt to? Yes, it's tried as attempted murder. Interesting. Probably because it involves poisoning someone yeah like you literally try and poison them so they appear dead so what happens next is a weird series of events the town decides that they're still gonna have the carnival celebration because the plan was basically like she was gonna get married and then essentially their reception was gonna be this big carnival celebration that the entire town got ready for and they were like it's what hadriana would want (laughs) plus we're all dressed for it anyway So they have the celebration. Part of the celebration involves bringing out 
an effigy that I will talk about later. When I originally wrote my script, I was going to talk about it now because I would have already told you about a certain part, but I'm saving it for last because it's so good. (laughs) The next night, Hadriana has a Catholic service. This is real awkward because the priest spends most of the time talking about how she has been defiled by the carnival celebration. Okay. Also, during the course of her wake, people like, um, like voodoo leaders in the town were like, Someone needs to deflower her, like her corpse. Ooh. Um, someone needs to deflower her so that, like, an incubus doesn't come and take her soul. Mm, no. Corpses don't have flowers. You don't have to take them. And then there was, like, this big debate over, like, who should deflower the corpse? <laughs> and we're told this conversation twice. Here's what gets, like, really amusing to me. So we're told this conversation twice. The first time is just like from the perspective of the town. And the second time is from the perspective of Hadriana. And the entire time she's like, I'm not as innocent as everyone thinks I am. I would have let Hector, I think is the man who she was going to marry. I would have let Hector like consummate our marriage early. And then apparently she and like the narrator had fooled around once. And she's like, and I would have let Patrick do it as well at which point she also like takes the time to let us know that patrick is like hung like a fucking whale (laughs) because they're debating having patrick do it because patrick is innocent and she's like oh it is really big like i'm not even joking (laughs) while she's like not dead but like conscious but not responsive she's thinking about patrick's giant penis Okay. <laughs> She's know. also thinking about how she let one of her female friends go down on her once. Real random, doesn't come in with any relevance at any other point in the story. It's like a single sentence in the book. I mean, she's got a lot of time on her hands, right? And she was a wealthy woman in Haiti in like the <laughs> early 1900s. So, yes, probably. All right. So, after her funeral service, she is buried alive. She is aware as she is being buried alive, which is terrifying. Yeah, I did not like that. What I forgot to mention is that during the wake, she has this moment where she's not sure if she's drifted off asleep or not and thinks she's waking up to hearing a cow being slaughtered and then her soul being ripped from her body Mm. by like a sorcerer who like puts it in a bottle and then takes it to his place where he keeps all the other souls in a bottle and then takes her on like a little tour and introduces her to all the other souls in the bottles. Okay. He's like, this is the soul of like a homosexual painter. This is the soul of like X, Y, Z, whatever. But then all of a sudden she wakes back up in her non-responsive body, but she refers to it as a false cadaver. So you're kind of left wondering like, is that her body? Is that not really her body? Is her real body a zombie now? Like, and it's never really explained. Mm. Um. Anyway, after the funeral, she is buried alive because she's conscious of it. But soon after, her grave has been dug up and her body disappears. So what we learn from her perspective is basically that people had dug up her grave and were like, groping her body it's real gross 
And the potion wore off and she woke up essentially. And she ran away from her like supposed kidnappers and she's banging on people's doors and they either couldn't hear because of the storm or they were so scared because bitch was supposed to be dead. Dead girls never say no. Uh, uh, That's a song, by the way. Don't write me emails about that. Please don't send us emails. <laughs> All right. And when no one answers their door, she eventually flees into the woods and then comes across another town where she gets on a boat to Jamaica. And that's basically it. Wait, that's the book? Or you mean that's it for the scene? No, that's like basically it. Later on, so it's really confusing. The first half of the book is the perspective of the town during all, like, the carnival celebration, which is a huge portion of it and very detailed and, like, full of lots of rich imagery and, like, cultural significance, but not much plot. Um, So not really relevant for the podcast, just, like, really good to read. Mm -hmm. That's why the entire time I was reading this book, I kept telling you, like, I don't think this is really... Like, I don't think this really fits the podcast. Mm -hmm. Like, it was good, and I really loved it, but it just isn't, it's not the type of horror that we're trying to talk about here. Yeah, but I mean, I feel like we can cover all genres. So, wait, is there like a romance in this? Not really, no, except like, okay, so... Like, super quick summary of it is the first half is from the perspective of the town, the night of the carnival, she has her funeral, gets buried, her body's gone the next day. Then it jumps ahead like 40 years, and Patrick is a teacher, and Hadriana walks into one of his classes one day, and she's like, let me tell you my story. And so she tells the story from her perspective, then they fuck and live happily ever after. Took her 40 years to go talk to Patrick? Because I was going to say, I, I like, romantic horror is a thing. But this isn't really necessarily romantic horror. Like, there's a story, there's a book called Ghost Bride that I want to read that's about the Chinese tradition of being able to marry someone who's dead. Like, that is romantic horror, and that would be really cool to read. This, the, th- the thing is, like, this isn't really a romance. Hmm. I mean, even Anna Dressed in Blood was more of a romance than this one. So do they ever, so, okay. The whole like soul stealing, turning her, turning her into a zombie. That was a dream. Did that? But you're not sure if it's a dream. Okay, so maybe she is a zombie. Maybe she's a zombie. Maybe she's not. But she's fully conscious and aware. She's able to tell her story. So you're really like, kind of left wondering. Huh. Okay. Unless I missed something, which is possible. I mean, I work a full time job and try and live my life while also trying to read one book a day, or one book a week. So it's possible that I missed something. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's got zombies and corpses and buried alive in it. But I don't know. It sounds okay. It doesn't sound like something necessarily that I would love. But Well, I haven't talked about the best part yet. Okay. Which is not super relevant to the plot. All right. What's the best part? So let's have a little talk about the butterfly. Oh, yeah. The face butterfly? Yes. Before I jump into this, let me say that I did do some research to see if this were an actual myth, and I did not find anything. But in case it is, let me say that I do not mean any disrespect. In case it is a Haitian tradition, 
What amuses me the most is how candidly the author portrays the story rather than the story itself. So once upon a time, there was a man named Balthazar Grandchere, and he was an orphaned infant, and he ended up being adopted by a sorcerer. At the age of 12, Balthazar was introduced to a secret society and developed a taste for sex. And so he starts banging all the ladies. And he eventually bangs a woman who is like super close to the sorcerer. And the sorcerer gets really mad. So as a punishment, the sorcerer turns him into a butterfly with a nine-inch wingspan. Not just a butterfly, though. A fucking butterfly. (laughs) So Butterfly Balthazar flies into the bedrooms of virgins and widows at night and hides under their beds. And once it's the middle of the night, he comes out and some like aphrodisiac comes out of him. If you've ever seen the animated Pokemon, I was picturing like the pollen that comes from Butterfree's wings. (laughs) Okay. And this makes the woman's heaving bosoms pop their nightshirt buttons and their asses burst the elastic of their underwear. I'm not kidding. This is what's in the book. And their vaginas just start like aching for the dick. Again, like it's in the book, obviously not so crudely put, but it's like something about their wombs crying out in need, like that sort of thing. Uh, which made me wonder, does this aphrodisiac smell like your cologne or something? God, You can cut that if you want. Or you can leave it. I don't care. Max's cologne smells good. Anyway, uh, the dick in question belongs to Balthazar. His butterfly penis, which as we've covered isn't actually a thing because they have hands at their anuses <laughs> uh his butterfly penis is already massive to begin with uh depestra at one point calls it a machine gun of a dick and that is a direct quote <laughs> but balthazar is cursed so that every time he has sex his dick grows <laughs> it's also serrated oh So Balthasar gently lands upon a woman's vulva, or his victim's vulva, I suppose I should phrase, unfurls his giant razor dick, which I I guess the imagery is supposed to be like some sort of proboscis that like curls up against him, unfurls his giant razor dick, and then proceeds to fuck them, ruining their bodies, sometimes killing them, sometimes not, while they orgasm wildly. That story got... Like, real gross, real fast. Oh, except this is chapter two. Like. That's just like. I just saved it for the end. It's like the lust death in seven. Yeah, except sometimes the girls survive. Like, there's a portion where they're talking about testimony where the girls went to confession and talked to the priest. (laughs) And she was like, I had 16 orgasms in a row. I'm okay with everything about that story except for the serrated penis. That does not sound like a good time. It's it's a lot. It's a lot. But, so you may wonder, why is the butterfly on Patrick's godmother's face? Well, Patrick's godmother has been known to put a lover or two into the hospital herself. Her first husband went to the hospital on their wedding night with a broken pelvis and her second husband with broken ribs. She was more than a match for Balthazar. Why you ask? Because she has seven vaginas. (laughs) Wait, what? She has two in her lower back, two in the front of her body, 
one to the side of her stomach and two and the author does note that these are particularly voracious vaginas nestled between her breasts what yes but yeah so that's the story of balthazar and the lady with the seven vaginas that that is an interesting story i don't even know what to say about that and that's why they wanted to deflower hadriana so that balthazar did not go after her spirit because balthazar only goes after virgins and widows oh okay and the effigy that i mentioned earlier that i said that i would mention later was an effigy of balthazar and before they burned the effigy of Balthazar, they cut off the massive erect penis that was on the effigy first and burned the penis and then burned the rest of him. Okay. Yeah, it's a very penisy story. As a lot of mine seem to be sometimes. Anyway, so here's the thing about Hadrian All My Dreams, just in case someone wants to go and read it. A review that I read about it put it perfectly in that it is, at the end of the day, a novel about Haiti with a little bit of magical realism and voodoo tradition thrown in. So if you're looking for a zombie bride situation, this isn't going to be it. The horror here comes from kind of like the sense of chaos that you have. There's almost like difficulty following the frenzied story and you don't really know what's going to happen because sometimes you don't really know what's going on but you can tell that something is going to go wrong but really what we're kind of left with is this short sparse story Hmm. so if you're reading it for the story this probably isn't the book for you but the imagery and the descriptions are fantastic also i think the translator's note at the end said that when she was translating it she had to come up with like 30 different words to refer to genitalia. <laughs> However, Hadriana always referred to her bits as her ripe almond. Almonds are very small. Anyway, <laughs> all that being said, for the sake of my rating, I am going to give Hadriana in All My Dreams a solid three ripe almonds. If you're wanting ghastly thrills and chills and a good horror story, this would be like one or two ripe almonds. But if you're cool with like super subtle literary horror, then it's four or five ripe almonds. So I just kind of averaged it and stuck with three. It's fantastic and gorgeous, but it's not necessarily the kind of horror that most people think of when they think of a horror novel. It's artsy horror. Yeah. I mean, I guess nobody nobody dies in it, right? Not all the way. Well, I'm only thinking that in terms of, like, if it's even worth asking if you think you would die in this book. No. I. It's just not that kind of book. Yeah. So. Unless I were... Well, see, the thing is, I wouldn't be fucked to death by the giant razor penis. Because I am neither a virgin nor am I a widow. Yet. But I hear it's great. Anyway, would you die in The People Under the Stairs? No, probably not. I don't know. I well, I don't know. They kill all the like maintenance people, and I guess like I've never really had a job like that, and that just like randomly going to people's houses probably wouldn't be my thing. So probably not. I don't really have anything clever to say about that. 
There's not a lot of people killed in that. I mean, there's they refer to a lot of people being killed, but really it's only Leroy and um, Spencer who get killed. Also, it's a huge metaphor and you're white. True, but Spencer is also white and he dies. Oh, okay. They will kill white people as long as they are lower working class, as this is kind of what it comes down to. Mm. But anyways, I just don't think I would just because... I don't think I'd ever be in that situation. And as long as you avoid that house, you're pretty safe. Like, <laughs> like honestly, like when he goes back there to save her, I, my thing is I was like, that seems so stupid. Just like call other people to go like fix that situation. Don't go back there. Send other people. Anyways. Yeah. That's that. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Goodreads at Second to Die Pod. You can also email us questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, or general chatting at Second to Die Pod at gmail.com. And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.